That's some old school worship. That's, uh, that's older than some of you that are here today, that song. It was written somewhere in the 90s, I don't remember when, but powerful, never goes out of date. I'm going to um, take you to a passage in Joshua 4 this morning, and uh, we'll be in touching over into Joshua 5, but let's start here. There's a moment when Jesus' followers, his disciples specifically, come to him, and they say, we don't know how to pray in the same way that we hear John's disciples praying. Would you teach us how to pray? And they're, they're talking about John the baptizer at that point. And they want to do what they hear John's disciples doing. And Jesus responds to them. Uh, obviously, he, he does teach them. He says, when you pray, I want you to pray this way. And I know it's very familiar to many of you. But he starts off by saying, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed, ancient word for holy, hallowed is your name, your kingdom come, and finish it with me, church, your will be done. Except we miss that part about the will, don't we? So many times we're praying for our will, and we want what we want. And Jesus said, when you start out, recognize who God the Father is, that He's holy, we want His kingdom to come, but He goes on to say, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Specifically that phrase, because God's will isn't always done on earth, it is always done in heaven. So what Jesus is telling His disciples goes way beyond what John had taught His disciples. He's saying you've got to get things in priority. What your first need is to recognize who you're talking to and what you should be asking for is asking for God's will. Let's carry that thought over into what we're going to look at in Joshua 4 and 5 this morning. But before we do that, I'd love to pray with you. Let's conform our hearts to His mind. Let's pray together. Father, we come in with literally, obviously represented by hundreds of people here, hundreds of different thoughts. So many of us have taken on this week in such a way that it seems like we can't hardly believe it's Sunday again already, and it just flew. But we also look back and not only wonder what we got done, but we also wonder how much we focused on You. And we use Sunday mornings, Father, obviously to reboot ourselves. but I would ask right now on behalf of each of us that our attitude would be such that we're looking for Your will in our life in the week that we're about to take on, that we would be looking for ways to magnify, glorify, exalt You, and tell others about You. So that requires us to conform our thoughts to Your thoughts. I ask, Father, that Your will would come flying off the pages this morning and that You would remind us of what that actually looks like. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. If you were here last week, you know that we were looking at Joshua chapter 3, and the children of Israel were about to cross a flooded river, the Jordan River. And it was flooded to such a degree that there's no way they could humanly get across on their own. It's high water mark. No bridges were built. And yet God intervened on their behalf. 
And there's a description that's given from uh, Dr. A.W. Pink, um, written back in 1945. Now, mind you, before you read this, Dr. Pink was Oxford trained and an Oxford professor, and he, he writes in an old school English. Even though he wrote this in 1945, it's written with some beautiful language. But he writes a description of what took place on the Jordan River. Look with me on the screen at this. The waters were cleft asunder so that those which came down from above were invincibly dammed. The downflowing torrent was supernaturally stayed. It was as though an enormous but invisible sluice had suddenly shut off the stream at its source. The huge volume which had already descended was made to turn backward and stand on a heap in a congealed mass. That solid wall of water must have appeared like some mammoth buttress, yet without any apparent support. People don't write like that anymore. Right? But it's beautiful. It's beautiful language, a great description of what we looked at last week in Joshua 3 when God literally cut off the river as it's flowing downstream. And Scripture describes that it began to pile up in this huge wall. But we get beyond that now when we come to Joshua 4 and we go to verse 1. They're coming out of the water, and here's where it starts. Now, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the people one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are, standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. And you find verses 1 and 2 are almost a verbatim repeat of chapter 3. At the very end of chapter 3, it ends almost exactly the same way. What it does is it ties the two chapters together Because if you go back to chapter 3, you find that Joshua already had commanded the selection of 12 qualified men. Now what he's asking is that those same 12 individuals would step forward and they would get their assignment. And Joshua is going to tell them specifically what he wants them to do. And the actual responsibility is they're going to take 12 boulders right out of the middle of the Jordan River. Now, these stones that they're going to remove, these boulders that are removed from the middle of the riverbed, that in itself is a remarkable testament to what God did. Because river rock is different from rock that you'll find laying in the desert. River rock is polished. It's smooth because of the torrent of the water, the current rushing over it. Over time, it makes it into a smooth item. So it gives a witness itself. This is not ordinary. This is something that's come from the middle of the river. You can't get that stuff just any place, only where the current is strong enough to polish it. So in this case, Joshua says, you're going to select them right from the middle of the river, right next to where the Ark of the Covenant is at, where the priests are standing firm. And then he tells him, I want you to carry those rocks and bring them over to where you're going to sleep tonight, over to the lodging place. And I'm guessing it's very near the end of the day because it takes a long time to get a couple million people across the riverbank and through the dry bed and up on the other side. And how tired are those priests by this point that are holding the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders during this entire time? Let's go to verse 4. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, "'Cross again to the Ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel.'" So the directive is very clear. I want you to go into the middle of the river, right next to the Ark of the Covenant, even though you've been told to stay a half mile away from it. Now you're going to go right next to it, and you're going to pick up these boulders from that spot. Now I'm just going to speculate here. Because I know guys, I'm thinking I know what each guy is doing here. 
No guy wants to come back with a pebble when the guy next to him has got a boulder. So every single one of those guys is going into that riverbed looking for the biggest boulder that they possibly can wrap their arms around. And Joshua said, put it on your shoulder, but I know guys, and guys are going to pick up this one because they're seeing their buddy trying to pick up the other one, and they're going like this and moving this boulder all the way over to the bank because this boulder is going to represent your tribe. And your tribe has just seen their amazing God make a river stand on its head. So every guy's got a task. They've got to go into the riverbank, pick up a boulder, carry it to where they're sleeping, and the people are all watching them. Verse 6, let this be a sign among you, so when your children ask later, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Keep going, verse 8. The sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel, and they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Now, raising up a memorial stone is something very common that we do today. As a matter of fact, in a few minutes, you're going to be singing a song about that very thing. Some of you have probably sang the song before and never knew that that's what you were actually talking about. Raising up marker stones is something that we do in our culture constantly. Our cemeteries are full of them. Headstones. Headstones which are a witness to the person's life. Not only when they were born and when they died, but something remarkable usually is carved into that stone. A marker stone that makes a memorial out of that person. We do that with statues. We do that with cornerstones in the middle of buildings. Well, it has its origins in this ancient text of the Old Testament. Marker stones are meant to do something. They're meant to provoke questions, specifically about the story of God's activity, so that it would be relayed to a future generation because, as humans, we are prone to forget. So God's very specific about this. He says, I want you to pick up these boulders for a very specific purpose because it's going to be a testimony to a future generation. So we find that God is concerned that we get history correct because whether you know it or not, humans are also prone to rewrite history, are we not? We do that a lot, even in our generation. God says, I want you to get the story right, and I want you to tell the story that there's a remarkable thing that's been done here. So the statement is, God's been at work. This enormous miracle of stopping the river water flowing through the Jordan is going to be told in this spot when your children ask. And it's not an altar, it's a big pile of river-washed rocks, specifically placed as a remembrance. Well, here's a word that I want you to get down because this is the word you're going to use in the midst of the song. Hebrew word that's not in your notes this morning, but you see it on the, sc on the screen, this word eben. And eben is talking about a stone, obviously it's not a huge definition, but when it, when it talks about a carbuncle or a bulge, it's something that's protruding forth. So when you think of a boulder or a stone, it's protruding forth from the earth. So we've got this word that's used here, this eben, and it's put together with another word, eben haezer, which is the stone of help. In other words, this marker of what the help was in your life. And we know the word today as Ebenezer or Ebenezer as it's pronounced in the English language. God is intending 
that this would be a highly personal action on the part of these individuals. So literally, in the Hebrew language, verse 6 reads this way, what are these stones to you? You're walking along with someone and they see a pile of rocks, river walk, washed rocks that are smooth, and someone from another generation would say, what do these things mean? No, not just what do they mean. What do these things mean to you? That's the way the Hebrew word reads. What are these stones to you? What does this mean to you personally? Church, I'm asking this morning, how would you answer that personally? If someone came alongside you in your life, in your social circle, maybe your children or someone whom you are in relationship with and said to you, why do you follow God? More specifically, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? How would you answer that? Because God's saying it's not if they ask. He says when they ask because they will. If people identify you as someone who belongs to God, they're going to naturally say, why did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that place? In my own life, I liked when our kids were little to take them back to our hometown, to my hometown where I was raised, specifically so they would see the areas where I learned to fish and where I went into the orchards with my grandfather and where I learned to tend to fruit and where I learned to go to church. And they would naturally ask questions. It stimulated them along the way. God says that's what kids do. And you better have your answer ready, an answer that exalts not only that this happened, but how it happened and why it happened, that God intervened, which is really consistent with the New Testament. See, therein is the content of your answer, church, if someone asks you that question. If you're following Jesus this morning, it's not because of tradition. It's not just because your parents happen perhaps to go to church, or it's not just because you're an American citizen or someone who's living in America if America's a Christianized nation. The question is, what did Jesus do for you? Why is it precious to you that you would follow Him? And in this case, God says you better be ready because you are the greatest influencer of the next generation. You are the influencers of children, good or bad. So don't lay it on the neighborhoods and don't lay it on the school systems. Lay it on yourself, like how am I influencing my children? Now, just a little parenting advice. You may not always feel like the children in your life are listening to you. You know they are. Next generation is always listening. Next gen is always watching, always. And there's lots of examples throughout the Bible of parents having to train up the children in the way that they should go. So that tells us we're not supposed to put that responsibility on the school systems, public or private. For one, public schools won't talk about God, and private schools don't always do that good of a job at it. But for a much bigger issue, primarily because it is your job, schools are merely the place where children live out the values that they've learned at home, that they've been learning throughout their life. And honestly, trust me, I say this as one who's come from a family of educators, and nothing against the school systems. I just understand that God says very, very clearly, you have to train up the child in the way that they should go. Proverbs 22.6 says this, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Uh, I guess if you've grown up in church, you say, I, I know that verse. I've read that for a long time. What you may not know is the literal meaning behind it. When it says train up the child in the way that he should go, it, it literally is inter interpreted in his way, meaning this. God designed every single one of us in an individual way. He made us very unique. There's certain specifics about you that are different from me. Scripture says that parents, those who oversee children, should train up that child, understanding how that child was specifically wired. What did God build into them that made them different from others around them? Help them discover that way that identifies them as different than the person next to them and the way that God uniquely built them, but that's just one component. There's a larger component to it. As you're doing that, you help them to see the God who wired them in the midst of their journey and be prepared to answer when they ask questions of you. Pointing them to the source in that way, you're taking advantage of questions in order to direct them in the way that they should go. And just one more tip, when you answer them, keep your answers short. You can exasperate a child really fast, right? So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When our son Derek was seven or eight years of age, um, Derek was a very inquisitive child, asked lots of questions. He's still inquisitive as a grown man today, but at, at that age, asking lots of questions. And so one particular day, Lori and I happened to both be at home, but he went to his mom and said, Mom, do bees have Jesus in their heart? That was a really cute question. And Lori didn't know what to answer him, so she said, go ask your dad. True story, right? <laughs> okay, so I was curious about why Derek would ask that question. Now, I was downstairs and I said, why are you asking? And he said, well, there's a bee in my window. And I said, okay. He said, well, come on upstairs with me. So I went upstairs to his bedroom and there's a hornet, sure enough, bald-faced hornet flying around in his window. And he said, Dad, do, do bees like that have Jesus in their heart? Here's the part that we miss as adults. Many times we just dismiss their question. Follow it up with this. Why do you want to know, Derek? Well, I'm thinking if it has Jesus in its heart, it's not a bad bee and it won't sting me. Ah, okay. Now we're peeling back the layers. There's something going on in his heart, and he's linking things together. Now, if I hadn't asked the question, why do you want to know, I would have never been able to go after the theological issue which sounds like a huge issue in a big word, but it was simply this. No, Derek, insects don't have souls. God built you uniquely. You have a soul. You can smash it if you want to. <laughs> All that aside, if you miss those opportunities to mentor or parent by asking the simple question, why do you want to know? You've missed the opportunity to talk about the uniqueness of how God made them and who God is in their life. Kids will ask questions. Verse 9, then Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day, meaning at the time this book was written. For the priest who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed. And I'm guessing that they did because they have no idea when is that window closing? When is this water going to come rushing down the river again? 
Now, grammatically, I think it's correct. I, I think I'm right in this. I know there's some scholars of the Hebrew language here. You can correct me la later. But I, th I think it's grammatically to, to say Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan River. In other words, 12 other stones. And I've arrived at this conclusion by the way the sentence is structured, but also because there's a marker on the land now. And there's a marker in the water. Well, what's the benefit of a marker in the middle of the river? There's only one way that a large monument could get in the middle of the river of river rocks piled up. And that's because the water wasn't there, and then the water was there. And it's there as this permanent reminder, like a billboard saying, here I am. But it'd be seasonal because when the water's high, it'd be flooded and it'd be covered. And then when the water goes down, it's this constant reminder of what God did. And then comes verse 11, and when all the people had finished crossing the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed before the people. So just like we looked at last week, the ark of the covenant gleaming in the Mediterranean sunlight, making its way across the river and that this reminder of the physical representation of the invisible God. And then comes this extremely important element in verse 12. All this is detail, mind you. It's building up to a much, much bigger issue that's coming in just a couple verses. But let's see verse 12. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war, crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. You get this beautiful imagery, water's been piled up, ark has gone out into the river, ark is leaving the river, stones have been piled up, there's markers, and then all of a sudden these guys show up with guns, and it's, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard when we learn that these guys are dressed in battle array, and it reminds every one of us, especially them, they're now in hostile territory. And there's a battle that's about to happen, and it's going to be a military conquest. So Joshua is instructed to make sure at least three of the tribes are well-armed and their guns are loaded. But at the same time, there's a strong visual of these soldiers that are armed and ready for war as this reminder that God has to go before them. Let me expand for you on what I'm describing here. Since we launched New Hope back in 2007, I've had a, a verse that I've shared with the church ever since the very beginning, and occasionally I, I resurface it again. It's been a while since I brought it up, but let me bring it up for you again. It's a life verse that I've used for a long time because it speaks of what's going on in my world. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show Himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. You can see right away why that verse would speak to someone, but it's also calling people to be loyal to God. Now, let me develop this thought. Think back to chapter 3 last week. Joshua said to all the people who were with him, you will know for sure that the living God is among you when something remarkable happens. And he went on to say in verse 10, and that he will without fail. Now, stay with me on this thought. He will without fail remove the water from the Jordan River, 
Well, he doesn't say that, but that is what he does. Well, that he will cause the water to pile up by the city of Adam 20 miles away? No, he doesn't say that either, although that's what he does. Although God does all of those things and everybody can see it, it's not the detail that he wants to remind them of. He wants to remind them of a bigger picture, something that's much more forward thinking. God wants His people to know that He's a promise keeper, that His Word can always be trusted, so He gives them a different detail. Now, our natural mindset would be that God should just give us the next action point, that God should just say, well, what I'm going to do is... A, I'm going to peel the water away, and B, I'm going to pile it up at Adam, and C, I'm going to go before you. See, we would just love for God to give us the very next step, wouldn't we? When we don't know what to do, when we have hard decisions in front of us, we would always love God to say, just turn left here, and when you get up there, take a right. We, we especially are facing that right now as we talk about phase two and building the next expansion on this building. When we moved in three years ago, we thought, this is perfect. This will work for the growth of the church. And then you all showed up. And (laughs) now we're trying to adapt to this growth, and we realize there's going to have to be a phase two, but we don't want to get ahead of God. So we're at the point where we're saying, God, will you just show us the next step? What specifically should we do? How do we approach this? But instead, God doesn't go about it that way. What Joshua says to them, you'll certainly know that God is among you, and you'll know that He is the living God when this happens. Look at Joshua 3, verse 10. He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. That's very forward thinking. Because when he says that to them, they're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're on the east side. The water hasn't been peeled back yet. It's not piled up at Adam. But he's reminding them of the big picture. There's something else that's in store for you. Now, while God is concerned about the immediacy of the moment, and he does want them to get safely across the Jordan River, and he wants them to remember what he's done, he is equally committed to the big picture So I want you to see it in the King James language. This is the way it's written a couple hundred years ago when it was translated into English. He will, without fail, drive out from before you because God never fails. His promises are always secure. And so what we're being told here is God's giving them an assurance program that the miracle at the Jordan River is just a down payment, if you will. It's a guarantee that the Lord will continue to show Himself powerful on their behalf. In other words, it's just one more in a continuing series of actions on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. So He assures you of the same thing today. He says it in many ways in the New Testament. Let me show you one example of that. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to keep working on you, keep developing you, keep growing you and draw you in until that final day when you come into the presence of Christ Jesus. It says it throughout the Scriptures that God doesn't give up. His Word is solid and true. Go with me to verse 15. Now the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priest 
who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. Now, the immediate purpose of the miracle you've been learning about obviously is to get the people across the Jordan, but the larger purpose of what's going on here is that we're reminded of God's capacity to show Himself powerful. And in this case, these people in this story, they are in a prime position. They are proving themselves loyal to God, that they completely belong to Him. They're crossing all the T's, they're dotting all the I's, checking all the boxes, everything that God has told them to do. They're pursuing every single directive that they've been given. And in response, God has, God is, and God will show Himself powerful, which takes us into the last two things I want you to see that's in chapter 5, and we're just going to touch on it. Go with me to verse 1. Now, it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. You heard the old adage before that news travels fast, right? News travels really fast even in the ancient world. People hear about what's happened. And it doesn't take very long before they've discovered, and it causes what Scripture says for their hearts to melt. I'll come back to that in just a moment. There's multiple issues going on between verses 1 and verses 12. Lots of detail is given. I'm not going to get into it today. You can read about it later. Just let me touch on one. Between verses 1 and 12, we get further evidence that the first generation, the parents of all these people, the grandparents of all these people, they were completely disobedient to God because what you discover when you read verses 1 through 12 is that not any of them actually bothered to circumcise any of the male children, even though God had said specifically. But it says right there between verses 1 and 12, none of the males had been circumcised. They disobeyed God, therefore they couldn't participate in the Passover. So apparently they didn't have Passover during all that period of time until they crossed over the Jordan even though God had specifically instructed them. And then you come to verse 12 and you get this reminder of the end of the old. Verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. I'm guessing the first steak they bit into tasted really good after 40 years of manna. 40 years of eating that, and it's no longer needed, so it stops. And verses 1 through 12 become all these details that move us forward towards this powerful image of what they're about to face. Now, to appreciate what they're about to face in a military way, let me help you understand who they're about to face. Because not only do you find that news travels fast, bad news travels even faster, these individuals, this specific group of people have heard this information and they are heavily affected by the news that they just heard. We're told their hearts actually melted with fear. But note this, church. The fear doesn't result in driving them to God. They've known all these details. They've heard about what God has done. They honor and respect the truth of it. But it does not result in driving them to God which separates the two different groups of people here. 
Because what to, is to one group of people a source of joy and victory is to another group of people this horrible sensation of being racked with fear. Well, who are these people? The Bible calls them generically Canaanites and Amorites, which becomes kind of a holding title for a large group of people. So they go on to list in the Bible, as you saw, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Hittites. They all fit under one of those categories. The Amorites and the Canaanites were known as a vicious, cruel people, barbarian in their behavior. But specifically, the Amorites lived in the hill country, and the Canaanites lived in the lowland. But what they had in common is that they were pagan in their behavior of cult worship. And so their desire was to sacrifice to their god, small g, with humans, specifically babies. They sacrificed babies because they believed that would appease and earn the favor of their god. So they're barbarians, they're, they're known as people who wear animal skins. They're also called by the ancient writers as men whom no one would want their daughter to marry because they're just so vile and vicious and they're part of a cult worship and they're sacrificing babies and this is who God is sending them up against and we're told their hearts are melting. Now Joshua, like any good military leader, he wants to check out what he's up against so he's going to do some personal recon and he's going ahead of these guys because that's what a military leader would do. He needs to see what he's up against. So as you read this, you find that Joshua has personally gone on a scouting expedition, apparently the day before they attacked Jericho, and he surveys the area surrounding the city, doesn't have binoculars, but he can see this double wall system, and he lays his eyes on the fortification. Now to this point, you've had lots and lots of detail, and all this detail is leading to the setup of a much bigger issue. Verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? If you go into the next chapter, you read that Jericho is closed up tight. Nobody's going in, nobody's coming out because they've been watching what's been happening and they want to make sure they are barricaded. So Joshua has positioned himself in a place where he can survey the city. And when he looks up, meaning the way that it's written here, he's caught by surprise. He sees this warrior with a drawn sword. Now Joshua thinks he's seeing an earthbound man. In other words, a human, a well-armed human, but nonetheless, he thinks he's seeing a man. I'm here to tell you this morning, this is no ordinary man. And seeing this being standing firm with a sword drawn, ready for combat, provokes a question from Joshua. Are you friend or are you foe? No. What? Are you friend or are you foe? No. This is one of the more confusing statements in the Bible because you would think with this one that he's encountering, you would get a direct answer. Think about the imagery that's going on here, church. The first image that he sees is the drawn sword. This first thing that's written here. He sees the drawn sword and that image lets us know this one is ready for battle. 
Now let's just give Joshua his due. This is a really bold move. When someone has their sword drawn, when someone has their gun loaded and pointed at you, you're not inclined to walk up and say, are you for me or against me? But that's exactly what Joshua has done here. Perhaps because God has said, Joshua, no one's going to be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Maybe that's what makes him so bold, but he's really bold in walking up and asking this question. But he's completely unprepared for what happens next. Verse 13, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Church, I'm going to throw out a question, and I'm going to tell you in advance because the 9 o'clock service didn't catch it. Um, This is participatory. Is God sovereign? Okay, about 60% of you believe it. Say it again. Is God sovereign? Okay, if you're in that place where you're a person who believes that God is sovereign, maybe you're new to church. Being sovereign means He rules over everything and everyone. If you're in this place where you understand that that is true, the question is never, God, are you on my side? See, if you're praying for your football team to win this morning, you're praying the wrong way. Always be praying that the people on the football team would conform their life to God's will. This is what Scripture is driving at here. It's wasted energy to be praying that God would do things the way that we want them done, but rather that we would conform our mind to His purposes. So the question is never whether or not God is on our side, but rather are we on God's side because He's sovereign. He sees everything. So I'm sure this caught Joshua by surprise when this one who's in front of him, especially when this one is who I say that he is, when this one says, no. Are you for our adversaries or for us? No. Are you for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. So this stranger is the commander of the armies of Yahweh. Which makes you step back and say, now, who might that be? There's a lot of hints that are given here in Scripture so that we can understand who this one might be. But let's just go with the hints. This one is a heavenly being, and he's ready to invincibly and invisibly fight in the spiritual realm. He has his sword drawn, and watch Joshua's response. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Now, it's not capital L-O-R-D, so he's not calling him Yahweh. He's recognizing him as Kurios, as in the New Testament in Greek, as, as one who's elevated, one who's above him. So he still thinks this is a human. What does my Lord have to say to His servant? And watch the response of the captain of the Lord's host. Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua's been on Mount Sinai. He's been there with Moses. 
he never got to hear God speak. He never got to see God. Moses had to relay all the information to him. But nonetheless, he's been there. However, he wasn't there at the burning bush experience. Joshua never got to see the burning bush, but he's having a burning bush moment right here. Come back to this question, who might this one be, this commander of the Lord's host? Well, first of all, the commander of the Lord's host means that the host is the angelic beings, and the angelic beings are always known as the army of heaven, warriors from God. So this one is the commander of those warriors, and this one receives worship. Angels don't receive worship. Joshua falls on his face before him. Angels, any place else in Scripture, say to the ones who fall before them, don't do that, don't worship me. Worship the one who's worthy of worship. This one receives worship, but also utters a very specific command when he says, take off your sandals, because where you're standing is holy. Any place where God reveals Himself is holy where God's presence is, makes something holy. So put the pieces of the puzzle together. You've got the commander, the leader of the Lord's armies, the one who receives worship, and where he stands is holy. And then there's the title. The Lord of hosts is a battle title, and it speaks of the Lord as the supreme commander of the armies of heaven. So David actually calls him out who this one is in the book of Psalms. Look at me on the screen, Psalms 24.10, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. So it's God. God is before Joshua, and Yahashua meets Yahashua in this moment. Joshua meets Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate arrival. The Lord is a warrior, and He's about to fight for His purposes. So I believe it's appropriate to say here, I don't think I'm wrong on this, this is a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus on the scene, and He's personally going to direct this battle. Because Scripture also tells us in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show Himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. New Hope Church, what a magnificent God you follow, the possessor of all power and all knowledge, infinite in His wisdom. He alone can alter the properties of natural elements because all of nature is subject to Him. Nothing is too hard for the one who can turn floods of water into walls 20 miles upstream. He can make water come out of rock. He can make the sun stand still. He makes iron to float and rivers to dry up and then turn back again. All these things motivate the writers of Scripture to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we follow after Him, He's going to be on our side Romans 8.28 was written specifically with this knowledge. Paul wrote an understanding of how God uses things for His purposes. Look with me on the screen. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Often, 
The Father allows difficult circumstances into our life. And then He allows difficult circumstances to become desperate circumstances. And when we're in the desperate phase, we look back on the difficult phase and say, I'd like to go back there, please. Because the desperate phase makes us feel as though we've been abandoned. James writes, that kind of testing, it actually produces patience, it produces endurance. Think it through this way. Israel is ready to enter the promised land, and it's not just the promised land because geographically it's for them. It's promised for you as well in this sense. God marries together geography and theology. I mentioned that last week. Things don't happen in the places in the Bible that they happen by accident, but rather specifically because that's where God wants them to happen. So the promised land to you is this. It's where the promised one is going to show up and die on the cross of Calvary for your sins to bring you back to God so you can spend eternity with Him. So the promise is given to you, but it's given specifically to this group of people that it's their new home. It's going to be their promised land. And they're right on the cusp of entering into it. And in the story, we find that they're east of the Jordan River and they want to go to the west side because that's where the promised land is at. And yet they've got this massive swollen river in front of them and they can't get there. And God says, yes, you can. You're going to go right through the middle of it. The flooded valley appeared to be directly against God's people, yet in reality, it's the overflowing of the Jordan River that was the all things that worked together for good. It was the all things of the flooded river that allowed God to show Himself powerful. Your personal troubles in your life, they may have reached the high water mark. Maybe you feel like you're on your tiptoes and it's right under your nostrils. And the flood is about to come over your nose. And when they overflow to that degree, everything appears hopeless. But according to what you're seeing this morning, it may be that God will allow circumstances in your life to play out in such a way that you will grow stronger because of that difficulty you're walking through right now. Or He may choose to intervene and alter the circumstances. But in every single case, it's never whether or not God is on your side. It's always whether or not we are on His side. Are we seeking His will? Are we seeking His glory? Are we conformed to His purposes? So Jesus says, when you pray, you better pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, Holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because God's will is always done in heaven, but it's not always done on earth. But that same God, He causes all things to work together for good. But all things don't always feel good, do they, church? And it causes us to say, maybe He's not on my side. God assures you this morning that if you are in Jesus and hard things come your way, those hard things can and will be turned for the ultimate good. You may not even see it during your lifetime, but God says, trust me, I can do this. I am God. So here's my challenge for you this week. I don't always give you a challenge, but here's my challenge specifically for you. 
My challenge to you is that you would look for the actions of God's faithfulness in your life. And when you identify those things, either big or little, look for the ways that God has shown Himself powerful on your behalf. And once you identify it, if you're able to do that, here's your assignment. Tell somebody about it. Don't keep it to yourself. Give God the glory and the honor, and I promise you it will stimulate further conversation. It will cause individuals to ask questions, and it will strengthen your walk. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the song that we're about to sing because of the way it declares Your greatness and the recognition that You're with us right through the middle of the river, but also in spite of the river, and it's always about the bigger picture of accomplishing Your will in our lives and Your will permanently and perfectly. So I pray as we take on this week that we recognize perhaps we didn't do such a good job last week of magnifying You, but we're ready to start again and begin again by giving You glory and honor and praise and speaking confidently of You and allowing others to see You lived out through our life. We pray for this. We pray for opportunities, opportunities to live out Your will for our life. We ask this in the majestic name of the one who is coming again, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.